it should be, and that's kind of the whole point, because we're going to see Peter as he does, where he's, he's, he's going he's gonna to miss the ball here. But there's hope for Peter, and there's hope for us. Okay, so Mark chapter 8, look at verse 31 through 33. Mark chapter 8, 31 through 33. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit, and then we'll go ahead and look at this. Holy Spirit, we pray now for your illumination. We pray for your help. We pray that you would open the Scriptures to us. Lord, we are utterly blind. We are utterly without hope, without, without the supernatural illumination that comes from, from the triune God. So please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 31 through 33. So the backdrop, you remember last week we're talking about how uh, Peter, for the first time, Peter actually confesses that Jesus is the Christ. That's the first time anybody has confessed that he is the Christ. And then we got to that very kind of unusual, unique verse 30, verse 30 here where Christ says, don't tell anyone about him. Right, so they're, they're excited. They're finally like, oh man, we finally, we finally have the Messiah before us. Because remember, Peter... Jesus is testing him. Hey, who do people say that I am? Well, you're this, you're this, you're this. Well, who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Christ. And so when he says in verse 30, he warned them not to tell anyone about him. You know, to, at least to each other, they're, they're given one of these. You know, they're like, yes, man, he's here. You know, he finally, because we've been waiting for thousands of years. If you're, you know, if you're an Israelite, if you're a Jewish person, you've been, you've been waiting for this, for the Messiah to come. And Christ does not deny that he's the Messiah. But the first thing that Christ tells them, he says, okay, guys, you're right, I'm the Messiah, but don't tell anybody. Which flies in the face of everything you would expect him to say. You expect him to say, okay, go out and tell everybody, it's, it's time, let's go. And he says, don't tell anybody. And we saw last week, it's because that's dangerous. They don't have a concept of what the Messiah means. If you, you, you can have the, the name of something, but if you don't have the correct content behind the name, you're more dangerous than you are good. You know, in fact, that's, that's what would happen. They would go out and they, they'd start sharing the Messiah. Well, in people's mind, their framework of thinking is the Messiah is this, when in re reality he's this. And so, this is why you have in verse 31. I'll go ahead and read through 33. But notice the first thing it says, and he began to teach them. It implies something new, right? He began to do this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Right? So verse 31, there, this is... This is something that they have never heard before. He began to teach them something entirely new. So, what has Christ been doing up to this point? You can't say that Christ has not taught them anything up to this point. He's been teaching them a lot. But primarily what Christ has been teaching them and focusing on, as I would say, two aspects of who He is. Number one, He is, he is the God of the universe in the flesh. He is the incarnate deity. He's the Son of God robed in flesh, and he comes, and you see this because whenever he calms the waves, for instance, whenever he has power over the bread, and you're seeing, okay, he is, the, he is the Yahweh who supplies bread in the wilderness for the disciples in the book of Exodus, and he's doing the same thing here. He's clearly showing himself to be what? To be transcendent, to be majestic, to be powerful, to be almighty. He's taught them that, and he's also showing himself, at least up to this point, to be uh, to, to have power over demons and, and, the, and the devil and, and the, the realm of darkness. Because you see, wherever he goes, he's, he's wreaking havoc on that realm. He's stomping out all kinds of 
you know, demon possession and people, even the, even the, the people who are afflicted, they have, they have incurable illnesses and all these things. Christ is showing that he is, he is sovereign over these things. But he has never taught them what he is about to teach them regarding the Messiah. That's why it says he began to teach them. They don't have this concept. We saw last week, if you were to take a poll and ask, you know, let's say 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 Jewish people living in the time of Christ, what is the Messiah? Here, here, you know, give me four things that the Messiah could be. Not a single one of them would say that he is going to come and he's going to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And it's not because it's not there, as we'll see. But it's because their notion of the Messiah had been so warped and twisted by almost a sense of, um, I mean, who knows what. There, there's all kinds of things going on. We saw, we saw with one, for instance, they wanted to be some kind of this, this, this zealot, revolutionary, social uprising where Christ comes in and he, he, he waylays the Romans. He, he does, you know, any kind of Gentile, any, every person that's not an ethnic Jew, they're gone. So that's usually the mentality that they have. But Christ is going to come in and he says, no, it's completely opposite. So he began to teach them. Now, let me pause here and ask yourself. Ask yourself this. Okay, what you're going to see Peter do is when Christ begins to teach him about this, this, this teaching is going to redefine the Messiah beyond recognition. They've never heard this stuff. Okay, ask yourself this. How often? So, so, so these guys are exalted. They're pumped up. Christ is here. The Messiah is here. And the first thing that Christ does is he, turn around, he turns around and tells them how much they're going to have to suffer. How much he's going to have to suffer, yes. But they're not idiots. They're not dummies, right? If Christ, the Messiah, if, he, if the leader of the group is going to suffer and they're following him, what does that mean for them? As we'll see next week, that means we're going to have to suffer. So they, they're putting two and two together. But here's the thing. Isn't it the same thing with us? For instance, when you find out, hey, when someone first comes into the faith, and they're pumped up, and they're elated, and they're excited, and they're joyful. There's reconciliation now for the first time in their life. They go from being an enemy of God, a rebel of God, to now all of a sudden they're, they're right with God, and God is for them, so who can be against them? But then you find out, you go, you know, I don't know, you, you, you're driving down the highway or whatever, and you, you blow out your tire. And you're like, what is this? I thought God was for me. You know, or, or whatever. You get fired from your job or you get sick or something. And so that's our mentality, is it not, sometimes? We're all, you know, because we look at it and we're saying, well, wait, what do you mean we have to suffer? What do you mean everything's not going to go my way? I thought the God of the universe is for me. What's this about? And also think of this. Whenever, and you know, this happens a lot, unfortunately. And I don't know if it's, you know, a lot of time when, when bad things happen, it's very easy for us to get bitter against God. I mean, that's the first thing we do usually. So we're looking, you know how it is. We're always looking for, okay, who can I, who can I get mad at? I mean, this, this is somebody's fault. Oh, I know who I'll blame. God, right? God, I thought you were all powerful. I thought, God, I thought you loved me. What is this? Right? So this is, it's, it's interesting because when you read Peter, so many times you're like, Peter, you're, what's this guy thinking? But then you start looking at your life and you're like, oh, I, oh yeah, I do that too. I see what he's doing. Now, look at also what you have is this. Sometimes people, you'll have, okay, Christ is king. You know, Christ is the king of the universe. We've already seen Christ. You can, you can look at it in this way. Look, Christ has shown himself to be, to be the ruler and the binder of Satan. Remember, he says, I've come to plunder the strong man's house, to kick him out. In 1 John, it talks about how Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. 
And so you can look at this, and we do the same thing, I would say, a lot of times. Christ is king, Christ has bound the devil, and we look around and we say, well, how can that be true? How is that possible when I still see wars, I still see evil, I see pot shops on every neighborhood in Clovis? How is this true that the devil is bound, that Christ is king? How is that true? You know, the Peter, they're looking at it like this. They're looking at, they're saying, okay, Christ, we've seen you whip up on the devils. Anything that opposes you, we've seen you calm the storm. We've seen you cause bread to come out of nowhere. And then you're going to go on and tell us what? What do you mean you have to suffer? What do you mean there's work for us? What do you mean, right? What do you mean there's still darkness out there because we need to, we need to throw our, our hands into the fight and, and because God uses means. When we go out, one of the ways that God brings down darkness is by his people going out with the gospel as, as ministers of the gospel. That's what it means that we're priests now. The priesthood of all believers. It means that we are to go and minister the gospel to unbelievers. So God uses means. And through that, yes, there is a, a diminishing of darkness, but it hasn't happened at least fully yet. My point is, though, is it's easy to make excuses. If Christ is king, if Christ is Messiah, if Christ is God, if Christ loves me, this and that, why this, why that? See that? And that's what Peter does. That's what Peter's going to do. Now look at this verse 31 here. Okay, He began to teach them what? That the Son of Man. And this is actually, this is just to kind of reinforce the fact so, so the Son of Man, of course, is a reference to Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And when you read this, this is when the Ancient of Days comes and, and he talks about the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is a conquering, majestic figure. He has dominion over all nations. He has an everlasting, he's given an everlasting kingdom. He is given celestial glory. He's, he's spoken of as the eschatological, the end-time judge. So, I mean, this is, this is a mighty, mighty figure. Dare we say... God, right? The Son of God and God the Son. And so, here it is again, right? So you have this glorious, celestial, transcendent figure that has power over all the nations, over all the tribes, over all the tongues, over every person here. Like we read today, we couldn't even move apart from God giving us the grace to move. The fact that we're able to reason at all is because God hasn't, you know, you hear some people, they... You know, he could snap his fingers and make us all drooling imbeciles at, on the spot. We see that with Nebuchadnezzar. He's on the balcony saying, man, look at, look how I am just so great. Poof. He's out like a beast eating grass in the field. Completely gone. Until what? Until he recognizes God. You're, I see now, you're God. Jonah's in the belly of the well. Why? He's same thing. Right? Tries to run, tries to rebel. The well comes up, poof, and what happens? He acknowledges God. He's vomited out. That's, that's a picture of, of regeneration. You're, you leave the realm of darkness and, and, and death and everything inside, and, and poof. You're, you're vomited. You're ejected out. Now you see things. So this is what's going on here. So the Son of Man must suffer many things. You see the paradox there? How can this glorious figure, this transcendent God, suffer many things? This doesn't make sense. And it certainly doesn't make sense if you're a Jew living 2,000 years ago. We have such a privilege to live on this side of the cross, knowing what happens, knowing what's going to happen. But we really have to get back and put ourselves into their mindset, into their shoes, and into what Christ is doing to really, I would say, I would say to really even appreciate just how profound everything is that Christ is talking about here that he must suffer many things. Now, you see the word here. The most important word in this phrase. Look what it says in verse 31. The Son of Man must suffer many things. What's the most important phrase there? Must. 
must. It's not like Christ is sitting back reading the tea leaves and trying to say, well, I, I saw what happened to John the Baptist. Chopped his head off. I see what happens to all the prophets in the Old Testament, all the faithful prophets. prophets. They're ridiculed, they're rejected. And so, you know, boys, I'm just, it's almost, you know, I'm just looking at it, and I don't know for sure, but I'm just assuming that the way things are going, they've already called me a blasphemer, they already call me Beelzebub. I'm just assuming, guys, I'm not, I'm probably going to die. He's not saying that. He's saying, I must die. It is the, my purpose in coming to earth is to die. The purpose of the Messiah is to die. And they're hearing that, and that's why they're, they're, they're freaking out, because they've never heard this. But it does raise some profound questions. It does, for us to ask. Because when you're talking about something that the Son of God, who is perfect, who is sinless, who is unblemished, who is spotless, and you're telling me that He has to die? Why, does, why is that? I thought God is good. You know, you hear it all the time. I, I thought, if God is so loving, if God is so good, if God is so wise, if God is this, why would, why would Christ have to suffer? Why would he have to do that? And the answer is, because God is so good and so righteous and so holy, right? Because it goes back to this, look. So when you have places in the scriptures, let's turn to Isaiah 53. First of all, realize the reason he must die is because it's the divine will of God. Okay, It's the divine will. And when I say the divine will, I'm not talking just the Father's will. I'm talking the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together, all their wills. They're not in a discord here. They're not, the son's like, he's not like, man, I'll, I'll, I guess I'm the odd man out. I'll go down and do it. I mean, drawing straws up in heaven. They're not doing that. The son of God must do this because, first of all, it's the divine will. And what do we have in the scripture? That's the other, that's the other reason. It's written down. You know, it's written here in Scripture, Isaiah 53. And by the way, this is the same passage in the, Philipp, uh, the, the Ethiopian eunuch when he's in the chariot. And he's going back home, and he's in the he's in the chair, and he's reading. Remember this? And he's reading the scriptures in the desert, and he's like, "Man, he's trying to figure out what in the world." He's reading Isaiah fifty three, and he can't. He's like, "Man, who's this about?" And that's when God, the Holy Spirit, sends Philip, and Philip he comes running over there and says, "Hey, what are you reading?" Well, I'm reading Isaiah fifty three. I can't. Who's this about? I need somebody to help me understand it, right? And he start. Philip starts telling, him, "Well, hey." What do you know? This is about, what's he say? It's about Christ. So when you're reading this, look, this is 700 years before Christ takes on flesh. Okay, And we'll start in verse 3 for the sake of time. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we, esteemed our, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken. Now look at the word, smitten of God. Smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Remember that when they take the spear? Pierce him. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Remember when he's in front of uh, his accusers. And they're asking him questions, and he refuses to say anything. It's written down. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living? That's a reference to death. 
cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. It was due them, but he, he did it instead. Verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, thieves, yet he was with the rich man in his death. Remember the rich man? He goes to Pilate, hey, can I, have, can I bury Jesus? Buries him. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, to be declared righteous. By his suffering, by his death, by his humiliation, by the, by the pain, by everything he, everything he goes through on earth, he's doing that to justify his people, to declare, to make them right in the eyes of God as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide a booty with, uh, with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. So when Christ comes to earth, he knows what the mission is. You see that? Now, the, the disciples should have known. The Jews at that time, yeah, they should have known. But apparently, they, they, they whipped. You can see it back in Genesis chapter 3. After the fall, what do you have? You have God, and there's a, there's a promise to the serpent that, that there's going to come a seed from the woman who's going to what? Crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent's going to bite the hill, which is a reference to death. In the ancient Near East, when a serpent bites you on the hill, you're dead. That was a reference to death. Even in all the sacrifices, the Mosaic sacrifices in the Old Testament, what are they doing? There's bloodshed, there's, there's death, because the soul who sins shall, must die. And that's why this is taking place. So Christ gets it. But everyone else, they're looking around, they're like, man, what? I've never heard this before. And so divine justice requires this because in order for God's justice to be satisfied, in order for us, our sin, to be forgiven, somebody has to pay the price in our place. You guys ever read uh, John Flavel, an old Puritan from the 17th century? And he has, so, so the, the, the Council of Peace or the Covenant of Redemption and, and is a, uh, it's a doctrine. It's, it's talking about this transaction between the Father and the Son. Before time, which leads to the Son taking on flesh and coming to earth. Well, what happens is, is John Flavel gives an account, and he says something like this. He says, you have, and it's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a reimagining of what took place. But you have this, you have the Father looking out on the mass of humanity under sin, under His judgment, under His curse, under His wrath because of their sin. John 3.36 says, those who are outside of Christ, the wrath of God is upon them right now. And so God the Father is looking on this mass of humanity that is completely undone. There's nothing they can do about their sin. They're helpless as you know, sheep gone astray. They're not coming back. These guys are way out of the picture. They're not coming back. In, in Romans 3, it says they're not seeking God. And the Father's looking at this, and he, what do you do? His justice requires... Because, see, what happens is if God just looks at the mass of humanity, He's like, you know what? Everybody's forgiven. I'm a loving God. Well, you're no longer just. You're no longer righteous. You're no longer holy. So you can't have both. You know, Muslims like to say, oh, He's both just and merciful. Well, yeah, He is. Because there was a sacrifice. Because there was a substitute. Not without that. Because without that, He's no longer just. He might be merciful. He might be loving. But He's not just. And therefore, He's no longer God. So what happens is, is Christ steps up in the Son. He says, Father, I will take their place. And the Father says, okay, Son. But you realize, if you do this, you have to suffer to the full extent 
of what they deserve. Not one ounce of wrath will be spared you. The son says, yes, I understand. I will do it. And then, we, of course, you see when Christ comes to earth, that's what he does, right? He comes to lay down his life for his sheep. And he does it. And so that's what he's talking about. And uh, the Westminster Confession, question 27, says, wherein did Christ's humiliation, that's what we're talking about here, the humiliation of Christ. And what did that consist? In his being born? Think of that. Even in Christ being born, he's already suffering in a way he would have never suffered had he remained in heaven. By the sheer fact of taking on flesh. You know how it is. When you take on flesh, you have aches and pains we don't even know about. And then you have the ones you do know about. And he had both, just like everyone else. So even from his being born, so in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, and then in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. That is the humiliation when Christ is saying, guys, you want to talk about the Messiah? Let's talk about the Messiah, guys. This is what the Messiah means. And they're blown away, right? I've never, I've never heard this. I mean, this, this, you, you, can't, you can't be serious. And that's why I look at what Peter's reaction is here. It's almost like Peter hears this, and then, and then in verse, uh, and we'll, we'll come back here in a minute to after three days rise again, but Peter hears this, and it's so, it's so unusual in a sense. In another sense, it's not. But Peter hears what he's saying. In verse 32, he's, it says that he's stating the matter plainly. This is the first time, this is the only time in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, that the phrase, that Christ explains something where it says plainly. Because if you remember, everything else has been, it's been veiled, it's been in parables, it's it's, 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 it's in a way that the disciples hear it and they're like, all right, Jesus, you got to explain what you just said out there. Because, you know, it's over. I don't get it. But this, it says this. He explained, he tells them plainly, clearly. In fact, it, it, it means something like an outspokenness that conceals nothing, boldly, confidently, with assurance. And they're stunned by his frankness, right? They're stunned by his openness. For the first time, Jesus is, and they hear this and they're saying, Wait, what? What? What are you. No. Peter looks at this and he says, no. That's not right. And so he grabs Jesus and took him aside and starts to rebuke him. You know, Jesus, you, you, you've got everything wrong, man. You, haven't, you clearly haven't got the memo. You haven't heard the teachings over here that we heard in the synagogue. You haven't heard what the Pharisees have been. T- no, the Messiah doesn't suffer. The Messiah doesn't die, especially die. Let's talk about that for a second. Now, isn't it just like us and just like Peter, just like us? Christ tells them all of these things. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, priests, uh, chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. But he doesn't stop there. He also says, and after three days rise again, and it's just like Peter, it's just like us to completely miss that part. But that's kind of the key, right? That's the whole thing. I mean, it doesn't just, okay, and the Messiah's come, he's going to die, and then he's going to be dead, and that's it. Game over. No, he rises. He... Now, here's the thing about the resurrection. This is not a foreign concept. The resurrection is not something that's new. It's not foreign. It's not novel. It was certainly in that area. If you remember, what's the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The resurrection. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees don't. In fact, I like Paul. Paul in uh, Acts chapter, I wrote it down, 23. So, and I'll just paraphrase it. What happens is Paul's in chains, and he's looking, he's looking at the audience, and he's in trouble, and I think they've already slapped him around a few times. He's looking around, and he realizes, he's like, all right, he's, 
we got Pharisees and we got Sadducees here. And so they're asking him, you know, why are you here, Paul? Why did they bring you in? And, and he's like, well, I'm here because I believe in the resurrection. Remember that? And the Pharisees are like, well, yeah, I mean, maybe that's not so bad after all. The Sadducees are like, oh, man, you know what? What do you mean? And so they start fighting. The Pharisees and Sadducees start duking it out. But it shows how vehemently they believed in this doctrine of the resurrection. If you uh, remember John chapter 11, when Martha says, and I'm, I am going to uh, turn there. So John chapter 11, 23, this is when Lazarus is in the tomb and Jesus intentionally waits to go before he raises Lazarus up. And so Martha comes out and she says, Jesus, you know, if you were here, then this would have never happened. But Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother's going to rise again. And she's like, yeah, I, I know he's going to rise again. On the, on the last day. And maybe that's what Peter was thinking. You know, Jesus is talking about the last. He's not talking about an immediate resurrection here. He's talking about the last day. And that's what Martha thinks. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Is that not a, It's the same profession that Peter makes in Matthew 16. It's the same profession we saw last week. This is the same profession that they're making. But the difference is, in a sense, I think that she demonstrates probably a little more faith, but she says, uh, I believe that you are the Son of God, even He who comes into the world. And so here's the thing. When Christ is telling them this, the point of the resurrection, when you think of the Christian religion, it, it centers on the resurrection. The wages of sin is death. That's why Christ dies. And when he's raised from the dead, what is, that, what is God declaring when Christ, when Christ is risen from the dead? That's God declaring that the sacrifice of Christ has, 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 has been approved, has been accepted. And that shows that in Christ, our sins that had weighed us down and had ultimately will kill us, every one of us. In Christ, like we saw Martha saying, what Christ is telling her, I'm the resurrection of life. If you believe in me, you will never die. How is that possible? Because Christ died. That's how that's possible. How is it possible that you will never experience the wrath of God when you die because Christ suffered the wrath of God in our place? That's what you're seeing here. And he's stating it plainly about the resurrection, about his suffering, but they completely missed that part. And in fact, in Hosea, this is a small minor prophet in chapter 6, it says, come, let us return to the Lord. And they used to read this in every synagogue, every service. They, they would have read Hosea chapter 6, 1 and 2. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. And that was interpreted as a resurrection promise. Well, this is, it's not new. That part's not new. The other part's new. The suffering part. But in order for Christ to be exalted, He has to suffer. That's the paradox. So now look what happens. So Peter takes him aside, and Peter and Matthew tells us, Peter says, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And we see in Paul, you know, Paul says that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. Remember that? This is a stumbling block to Peter. Christ crucified is a stumbling, plot, a stumbling block. And what's the irony of this? When, here's the irony. When Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him, where is Mark getting this information from when he's writing his gospel? From Peter. Peter must have felt, you know, very humble. 
Enough to say, you know, I, I, was, I, I took them aside. I started rebuking them. I couldn't believe it. Now, here's the other thing on this. Now, think about it. Think about this, okay? Have you ever done this? Have you ever tried to take God aside? Say, listen, God, you got it all wrong. I know that I have certain afflictions in my life, or I'm in certain situations in life. I got a, I got a crummy job, or I, this or that. You know how it is. You know, it's, it's funny. I know, I know a lot of people, I know a lot of you, um, some, sometimes when you're single, you want to be married, right? And you're like, God, man, I'm, I'm not going to be happy until God brings me a wife. And I'm not saying anybody here does that, but I'm talking about, I know what it was like when I was single, right? And you're like, man, this and that. But here's the thing. You know, in God's providence, He is the one that determines our station, our lot in life. And so whenever we're going... And, and, and look, there's nothing wrong with praying. Praying for a wife, praying for health, praying for, for, for your needs. But that's, a far, that, that's different than looking at God and saying, God, this isn't right. Every time... Here, here's another way to look at it. Every time we grumble or complain... We're doing what Peter's doing. Every time we grumble or complain, it's a rebuke to God. Indirectly, we are rebuking God. Are we not? Because if we truly believe God is sovereign, and that God is providential, and that everything that takes place in our life happens for a reason, for our good, like it says in in Romans 8, and then we turn around and we grumble or complain about it, I'm speaking to me, but really, think about how hard this is. Every time we do this, we're acting like Peter. We're taking God aside and we're saying, God, you, 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 you've missed the ball here. I know you're wise, and we'd all say that. You know, I know that you're wise, and I know that I'm, you're wiser than me, but, right? Very, very unique as far as what we are thinking as human beings. Like, this is outrageous. You know, no other, no other creature in the universe grumbles or complains about their lot in life. Have you noticed this? You'll never see a dog. They might whine, but they're not, they're not like mad. They're, they've resigned to the fact. And they, like children, it's even, you know, it's funny with children. In a sense, I mean, they're definitely simple. We see that. They're selfish, everything else. But, you know, it is funny. When they're sick, it's almost like they haven't developed that thing in their head where they are, you know, like complaining and grumbling about that. They're, they're sick, but you guys, I think you know what I mean. But it's amazing because as we grow or something, as we, as we, as our sinful nature becomes more, more developed and complicated and sophisticated, that's the better word, then we look around and we're like, I want this, I don't have this. Now you see this in kids too, obviously. And you start grumbling. That's doing what Peter's doing. And by the way, when you're single now and then you're married, you're going to look back and you're like, man, those single days, man, I had a lot of time. So... It's funny, though. That's how we do it, right? It's like, whatever situation I am in life, I'm going to grumble and complain about it. That's not right. That is not right. And so, that's what Peter's doing here. Peter is exposed to the greatest instance of God's wisdom. That he acted, so, so, there is no greater demonstration of God's wisdom than the suffering Messiah. And Peter looks at that as the height of folly. You know? And so, in our life, there is no greater instance in our life for us to become more mature as Christians, more like Christ as Christians than suffering and affliction. And yet it's the, it's the one thing that we always, always, always grumble and complain about, our lot in life, our afflictions, our struggles. 
right? So, I mean, this is this is spot on here from from you know how Peter acts, and you look and we're like, man, this. Here's verse thirty three though. Okay, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter and says, "Get behind me, Satan!" And that's something. The "get behind me" part is kind of like get in line, Peter. You're out of line. You know, the Messiah is here. It's it's time to know your place. Get behind me, Satan. Now, is he calling Peter Satan? What he's doing here is he's he's referring to Peter in a way. Uh, Peter is directly opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, what does Satan do in the wilderness whenever Christ comes to earth? What's he doing? Satan tries to keep Christ from suffering. Remember, he says, hey, if you just bow down to me, you don't have to suffer. I'll give you everything you want. Just don't, don't, all you have to do is bend the knee to me. Things like that. And so that's what Peter's doing. And so that's why, in a sense, he's saying something like that. And, and, um, and you see that. But notice the ping pong going back and forth between Peter and Jesus. So Peter, going from last week, Peter declares Jesus as Messiah. Jesus, you're Messiah. Jesus says, okay, Peter, don't say anything about it. So he silences Peter. And then Jesus says, I must suffer many things, etc. And Peter silences Jesus. And then now Jesus silences Peter as, and it's the same phrase, as he earlier did the demons. Remember in the wilderness and other places, a lot of times Christ will silence the demon. And he's doing that to Peter here. Okay, um, But here's, here's what the disciples need to know that they don't know yet. And this is why this is such a big deal that Peter, when Jesus realizes that Peter, uh, that Peter is infecting the disciples. See, the thing is, is, is Peter and the disciples, all of them, they have to learn that following Christ means to suffer and, and die, ultimately. And so at this point, they are opposed to suffering and death as it relates to the Messiah. Are they not? What's the big hang-up here? What's the, what's the stumbling block for them? Messiah stumble or Messiah suffering, Messiah death. I can't have the two together. You can't have that. And so Christ is going to have to work this out for all of them to for them to realize that if I and, and we see this, if I am called to go to the cross, then that means my followers are called to go to the cross. They realize that. Death for Christ, death for them, and guess what that means for us? That's the point. Right? Suffering for us, death for us, discomfort for us, afflictions for us. Trials for us, tribulations for us, all these things. But the difference between our trials and the trials of the world is that we look at our trials and we realize they come from the hand of a loving Father. Which means what? There is a purpose in the affliction. There is a purpose behind why He has me where I am. There's a purpose behind that. There's a reason for that. It's not just an arbitrary, you know, magical, just kind of, well, this is just, everything's kind of random, and, and this is kind of where things fell out for you. You know, like there's a deck of cards somewhere, and you, you just blind, you know, close your eyes and just pull a card out, and that's, that's your lot in life. No. God in His providence has placed you where He's placed you. He puts you in the position He's put you in. And, 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 and that, that presupposes suffering. Now, everybody has suffering in life. Everybody. But you have to realize, and I, you know, here's the thing on this. We have to realize, Right? Christ, when he says, get behind me, Satan, why does he tell him that? He tells them that. He tells us why he says that. He says, because you are setting your mind not on God's interest, but man's interest. That's why he tells them that. So as you're looking at your own life, here's what we have to ask ourselves. As we close up here, okay? Here's what you have to ask yourself. Well, I mean, the obvious. You know, are you more concerned with God's interests or are you more concerned with man's interests? 
Are you more concerned? Because, again, going back to grumbling and complaining, every time we grumble or complain about our station in life, our lot in life, we are saying we are, we, we are more concerned with, with man's purpose than God's purpose. Are we not? Does that make sense? You see how that is, right? Because I'm saying, well, God, you know, um, this is God's purpose for me is to work weakness in my life so that I will depend more on Him than on myself. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 11. Remember what Paul says? Paul says this. Well, uh, first Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12. He has a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that is. And he prays to God three times. God, get this thing out. Whatever it is. Whatever it was. God, you know, get it out of here. I implored the Lord three times that it might lead me. And the Lord says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. The disciples have to learn that. You see that? They have to know that. Right now, they don't know that. Right now, they think that the power of God is perfected in strength and in arms and in might and in, and in zealous uprisings. And Christ is saying, no, it's the opposite. It's the paradox. In order for Christ's power to, dim, to be demonstrated, it comes through weakness and suffering. And then Paul says, therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How is he strong when he's weak? Because he realizes the only way I can get out of this, or the only way, I, not, not just get out of this, let me back up. I think that's part of the problem. I think in our culture, right? Our culture is like an easy fix kind of culture. Get me out of this, get me out of that, and do it fast. Do it now. But that's not God's way. Because what happens is, is we look at, we look at things and we pray, God, get me out of this. God, deliver me from this. And again, it's not to say that's wrong. But maybe our prayers should shift and say, God, not necessarily get me out of this or deliver me from this, but God, give me the strength and the resiliency to go through this. Something like that. Because that's resigning more to God's will and recognizing that, God, if this is your will for me, I want to resign to that, but man, I don't have the power to do it. My flesh is too strong to resign to this. Give me the grace See that? To work the weakness in me so that I am able. And you know what? This is beautiful because over time you start work, you, you become more mature in this. Not to say it's ever easier because you'll have challenges and trials all your life. But it's to say that this is what helps us to become more like Christ. There's a good illustration here regarding um, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We all know Bonhoeffer. So Bonhoeffer, some of his theology is garbage. But man, this guy, I tell you, some. But this guy, when you, his, his, Here's the thing, his mindset. So he wrote a book called The, the, the Cost of Discipleship. And when you read this book, it's, it's about the idea is, is when Christ bids you to come, he bids you to what? Come and die. Come and suffer. And so he's, and, and this is where I'm going with this. this. It was especially true for the church in his day. And so the church in his day, they were caught up with something like cheap grace, where, you know, you come to Christ, get your grace, and then... Everything, you kind of just coast until you go to heaven and that's it. And he, his, his, his book was a call to, to get into, into action in the sense of when you step into the path of being a Christian, you have to recognize it comes with suffering and it comes with costs and it comes with it, death or whatever. 
And of course, in his life, it, it was with death. So, and, and this is a good example. It's, it's against our sin. It's against our, our lot in life when we grumble and complain. But it can also, you know, suffering is also whenever you have somebody like in, in, in Bonhoeffer's day, you had Hitler. You know, and, and, and so Bonhoeffer, the first chance he gets, the first opportunity he has, he joins hands with people who are trying to bring down Hitler. Why? Because Hitler is, in, is antithetical to what the scriptures teach, what Hitler's doing. And so he recognizes that, and his call was even for the church. The church at that time didn't want to suffer. They wanted to stay on the sidelines and not get their hands dirty and say, you know what, let's just coast all the way to heaven. Get our, you know, get our numbers up, pad the numbers, get the people in the doors. We're not going to get involved in anything, though. We're not going to try to actually change culture or bring down strongholds outside. We're just content inside. And so that was his call, to say, listen, when, this, when, you, when you're talking about being a Christian, suffering entails more than, okay, don't grumble or complain when we're, when we're going through bad things or with a certain lot in life. It's also, whenever you see injustice being done, whenever you see unbelief, or whenever you see abortion, whenever you see any of these things, guess what that means? We're called to speak up about it. Right? And you're like, man, if I speak up about it, though, you know what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen? I might lose my job. Yeah. Yeah, you might lose your job. That's right. Right. That's not easy. No, it's not easy. It's not. But what did you sign up for? (laughs) What did... What is this about? You know, this is not a country club. This is not just a, 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 a group that likes to get together. We all like each other, but you know what I mean? This is, this, is a, this is an army, man. This is a militant church. That's the phrase that the reformers used about their church, the church militant. The church on earth is the church militant. The church in heaven is the church triumphant, the church victorious, because militant means we're in a war right now. We're in a battle right now. And these disciples don't get that. They are, they're repudiating that. And so the question, of course, for us is, where does it stand? Where does this stuff, where does it stand with you? You know, like, where are you in all of this? Is, is this, when you look at the cost of Christ and what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Christ, have you considered that? You know, have you considered what it entails for Christ and for you and for me? And I'm not saying it's easy. That's why we have the church. You know, that's why we need the church, because we encourage each other. We pray for each other. We're here for each other. We fall down together, and we have victories together. We're in it together. But that's what this is about. This is about extending the kingdom of Christ on earth. That's period. Whether it's in our homes, whether it's our lives, our own individual struggles with sin, or whether it's out in the culture. That's what this life is about, if you're in Christ. Advancing the kingdom of Christ. Period. All right, let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for Christ. Lord, what, a, what an example for us. Lord, thank you that he was submissive. That he resigned to your will despite the unbelievably, unbearably difficult cost. Lord, things that we will never experience no matter how bad and hard and difficult things get here on earth. We know that it is, it's nothing compared to what Christ went through on earth. And then, and then, not only that, but Lord, we thank you that we, we have the helper, the comforter to help us, whatever we go through, whatever, whatever we're called to do, however we're called to suffer. And so, Lord, forgive us for complaining, forgive us for grumbling, Lord, forgive us for having this mindset that Peter has, Lord, it's, 
Lord, help us in this. Help us to resign to your will, to, to imitate Christ. Help us to, help us to be resolved to, to suffer, knowing that your, your power is perfected in weakness. Lord, forgive us for kicking against the, the weaknesses in our lives. Lord, help us in this. We need, we need so much help, so much grace. And so we confess our faults, our shortcomings, but we also praise you that you are a God who, who comes and, and delivers the downtrodden and those who, are, those who are lowly, those who are grieved over their sin, over their shortcoming. We thank you, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. And this is especially true for the supper. You know, the supper is such a, a blessing. Um, and and, and there's, there's an element of the supper I want to look at today. This is 1 Corinthians 11. So... When you look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, it says that the Lord's Supper has been given to us so that as it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. What the word proclaims means is you show forth the Lord's death until He comes. You show forth the death of God, the death of Christ until He comes. So every time we partake of the Supper, it's showing forth, we are proclaiming it. Now, Here's a few things to ask yourself regarding the supper. And I think this is just neat stuff as far as when we're considering the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper, first of all, it, it memorializes the sacrificial death of Christ. So when you take the supper, so God has given us um, different ways to, to encounter the gospel. One of those ways is through our ears, right? The, the airwaves and as, as the projection goes forth and you hear things, right? The, the audible pro- proclamation of the gospel. That's one of the ways that God has set forth the death of his son. Through the audible proclamation, you can read things like that. But there's a tangible way that God has set forth the death of his son, and that's in the Lord's Supper. So this is a visible proclamation of the gospel given to us by God for our senses. How cool is that? That God does not, you know, this isn't Gnosticism where you don't have a body. God recognizes. He's given us a body. And so he gives us, he gives us a proclamation in the form of something that we can taste and see and touch and hear, or excuse me, smell, because you already took care of the hearing part. But here's the question that I want to ask, a couple questions, okay? You see the bread and the wine. The bread and the wine is separated. Why is that so? You ever wonder that? Why is the bread and the wine separated? So some churches, they might do like in tincture, things like that, and some, some you know, I don't, I don't know, maybe you've never thought of this, but, but here's what's cool about this. So in the Old Testament sacrificial system, all the animals in the Old Testament sacrificial system, before they're sacrificed, you know what they do with the blood, right? They separate the blood. The, bo- the blood is poured out. So you have the blood and you have the animal. They're separate. You have the wine, you have the bread. And then also, think of this. Okay? The bread is broken. And every instance of the Lord's Supper, the account says he broke the bread. In front of them. And we try to make it a, a thing where, you know, we, we, we have something that we can break. And why is that? Well, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, every single animal that was sacrificed in the Old Testament sacrificial system was broken, was ripped apart. Even the little birds. You know, you take a little bird, like a, a baby bird, up to, the, up to the priest, and you know what they do? They wring the head off from the shoulders. And what is that, what is that supposed to indicate? Everything they did had a meticulous, very significant reason. They did that because, remember back in Abraham, with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, when God comes to Abraham, and they, they tear apart the animals. And then God walks down the middle of those animals. And it's God calling down a curse on his head. He's saying, as you see these animals torn apart and laid across the sides here, so will happen to me if I break my covenant. Well, here's the problem with us. We have broken 
the covenant. Our side of the covenant. Our end of the covenant. And so the penalty are these, these animals that are cut in two to, re, to be a substitute for us. And of course, all of this was pointing to Christ, what He was to do. Okay, So that's why the bread is broken. And then you have the wine. Why the wine? And I think we talked about it a, a few months ago, but first of all, wine is bitter. When you drink wine, I don't care even if you like wine, there's that raspy <coughs> kind of feeling, right? Well, first of all, you can look at the bitterness of Christ's death. That's why there's wine. But also, the wine, of course, represents the shedding of blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Blood on the doorposts. And the Lord sees that, and because He sees that, He passes by that house. And so that's why there's the wine or the blood. Now, here's the thing about the Lord's Supper now. right? We don't bring animals up to the front. We don't bring... We don't... We don't... We don't uh, pour the blood out and slaughter animals. You know those priests in the Old Testament? You know what they would be doing all day? Nothing but slaughtering animals. Blood everywhere, guts everywhere, and you can imagine the smell, the aroma of death on everything. Well, now, what do you have? You have, there's no bloodshed. There's no bloodshed here. There, there's, there's, no, there's no animals being ripped apart here. There's no odor of death, unless you're an unbeliever. Why is that? Because Christ has already gone forth and offered Himself on the cross, on the, the, the sacrifice. So that's why the Lord's Supper is a, uh, a, memori- it's a, it's a, it's a sacrificial, it memorializes the sacrificial death of Christ. And that's why here, when it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, you set forth, you show the Lord's death until He comes. And that's what we have in the mill. Okay, so um, we do want to make sure that only believers who are in good standing with their churches, partake of the, of the meal today. Um, Christ laid down His life for His sheep, and so uh, we do in that sense fence the table in the sense of if you're not a believer, if you're outside of Christ, um, the Bible says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And so we want to make sure that um, that, that you are in Christ, that you have a, a right standing with Christ. Uh, if you have any questions on that, let us know. Uh, we'll definitely talk. But, uh, but anyway, so if you are in Christ, here's the thing though. If you are in Christ, if you're in Christ, man, Christ tells you to eat, eat of the table. Eat the bread and drink the wine. Why? Because spiritually, guess what? He is present in the elements. He's present. Now, it's not to say this stuff turns into Christ like the Roman Catholics. It's not that. But it's to say that spiritually, it says in 1 Corinthians 10 that this is a true participation in the blood and in the body of Jesus Christ. And the reason that's significant is because through this, He strengthens us. He helps us. He encourages us. And so this is for His people, and we need it because He is in it as we partake of it with the mouth of faith. So let's pray, and then we'll have the guys come up and hand out the elements. Oh God, we pray that you would set these elements apart. We thank you, oh God, for this this meal that you have given us, that you have given us access to you, not just to hear the gospel, but to see the gospel, to taste the gospel, and not just to see and taste the gospel, but Lord, that that we actually um, get to partake of true union and true fellowship with Jesus Christ. Lord, what a remarkable miracle uh, 
uh, a wonder, a, 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 this mystical union is beyond comprehension, Lord. So we pray that you would bless this meal, give grace to your people as we partake of it now in Jesus' name. Amen.